This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello, I'm Dan Coatesworth, and this week we've got a very special edition of the Money Markets podcast, looking at the world of property. Danny Hewson is with me on the show today, and we'll be talking to numerous experts about a wide range of things related to real estate, bricks and mortar, homes and buildings. Yes, Dan, we're going to cover all ends of the spectrum from the type of property that you and I might own right up to office blocks and the gigantic warehouses that you might see along the sides of motorways. If there is one thing for certain, it's that large parts of the property market are hot stuff at the moment. Independent property consultant Alex Goldstein will be joining us to chat about the explosion in house prices. And David Hollingworth from London and Country will be giving his tips for anyone trying to get a mortgage. We've also got Ryan Hughes from AJ Bell talking about the troubles people have had with investing in property funds and alternative ways to look at the space. And finally, James Dunlop from Tritax will be here to explain why warehouses have become prime real estate thanks to the surge in online shopping. And that's just at my house. Before we talk to our first guest, though, there are a couple of big stories around at the moment which definitely warrant your attention. And Dan, we're going to start with the bidding war for Morrison's because we've had two private equity proposals and a third player has indicated their interest. So what's going on with this courtship of Morrison's? What's so attractive about this supermarket, Dan? Well, you know, we're talking about property on the podcast and, you know, property is a very key thing here with Morrison's because it owns the freehold to 85% of its stores. But, you know, there's a, there's a bit more to it than that. You know, we've had CD&R offer £2.30 a share. And that proposal was immediately rejected saying, you know, the board of Morrison said, this is just too low, undervalues the business. And then Fortress have stepped in and said, well, we'll offer you £2.54 a share, which the board have subsequently recommended. And then we've had Apollo say, well, we might actually make another offer, you know, make an offer ourselves. So, you know, Apollo missed out on buying Asda recently, and it's got almost $50 billion of cash available for investment. So it's definitely a serious contender. And it's also Amazon as well, because it's got a joint venture with Morrison's. And, you know, there is lots of chatter that it might want to throw its hat in the ring as well. But you know, if you think about private equity firms, they're looking for companies that have been through a tough period, that have reorganized themselves and emerged stronger, which means they need less cash to support the business. And I think that's quite a good description of Morrison's. You look at the supermarket space as a whole, they've all benefited from higher sales during the pandemic. Yes, they've had to hire hundreds of millions of pounds. Sorry. Yes, they've had to spend hundreds of million pounds on protecting staff and customers from COVID. They've had to hire more staff to cover absences due to sickness. And they've had to reshape their business to cope with the surge in online shopping. At the same time, they've also been cutting overheads. Now, those costs have now been sunken into the business. Margins are probably going to be improving. And if someone was to come and buy the business, well, they could reap the rewards of all this hard work through rising cash flows, which have otherwise would have gone to shareholders in the form of increased dividends. And if you just look at the fact that Morrison's is 
it's got this very special agreement with Amazon to be a key supplier. The same with McColl's convenience stores as well. So strategically, Morrison's is in quite a nice space. And if you go back to the fact that it's got all this property, some people are saying the value of these stores is even more than what's been offered by Fortress for this takeover bid. And um, you know, one of the reasons why Morrison's board is actually recommending a Fortress bid is is a promise it's going to respect the history and the culture of the business and not make any radical changes. And, and part of that is it's not going to do a big sale and leaseback of the substantial owned store portfolio or raid the pension scheme. And it, it's not really often that you get these reinsurances from a would-be buyer that they'll keep things very similar to how things have run at the moment. It's been quite interesting, Dan, because with the third potential bidder that came in, they were making a lot of noises about protecting pensions. And I know over the weekend there was a lot of concern about protecting suppliers and all the deals that have been done there and looking after farmers. There could be an awful lot of wiggle room here in negotiations. Yeah, I I definitely don't think that this is a done deal. Um, I think that we'll see... Other parties, you know, potentially Apollo, you know, actually sort of making a firm move. And, you know, you have to look at the shareholders as well. You know, they're thinking, well, you know, clearly there's lots of interest. And we've had a big trend recently for um, takeovers by private equity companies have been recommended by the board only for shareholders to subsequently push back and say, well, we want a bit more. Uh, and you know, in many cases, we've seen a higher bid than being put on the table. So you know, this, this uh, you know, it's quite exciting episode of you know, takeovers at the moment involving Morrison's is definitely not over. And I know that we saw shares in some of the other public supermarkets, uh, certainly in Sainsbury's and Tesco as well, getting a real boost because there's a lot of talk about whether or not Sainsbury's in particular might be attractive to any party that doesn't take on Morrison's. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's definitely lots of people you know, running the numbers over these businesses and thinking, you know, is there any sort of value to be had here? But, you know, the other big story of the week is the collapse in talks by members of oil producers cartel OPEC about potentially increasing output. Now, that's led to rent crude oil prices trading at their highest levels since 2014. Yeah, there's lots of talk about the potential for the oil price to hit $80 a barrel, $90 a barrel when we get into August. And I know there was some discussion just a few months ago about it maybe hitting $100 a barrel. Well, Maybe right now the stage is set for that. And oil prices have been fluctuating all over the place today. Um, We got up to $76 a barrel. At the moment, it's just over $75 a barrel for Brent crude and just over $74 a barrel for the West Texas. Um, It's fascinating because you would have expected right now, as demand is ramping up, that OPEC would want to take advantage of that as much as they possibly can, because they know that the time is ticking as we transition to net zero. What's happened instead is there's been a disagreement between Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, and that has effectively put the kibosh on talks. At the moment, we don't know when they're going to restart. And at the moment, production is going to stay as it is. So it's not going to increase, which is why we are seeing oil prices rise. Now, 
there is a bit of concern behind this because the last time we had a disagreement, it was between Saudi and Russia back in March last year. And that sparked a huge price war as Russia said, you know what, we're just going to do what we like. We're going to send out as much oil as we fancy. And then Saudi did as well. And we saw that happen at a time when demand for oil was falling because of the pandemic and all the restrictions that were being put on in various countries. We're in a different situation, obviously, because demand is ramping up. And I think most analysts I've seen agree that they do expect some kind of agreement to be reached at least by August. But at the moment, it's having a knock on, obviously, to stock markets because we are seeing companies like BP, like Shell, like um, a number in the United States benefiting. They're seeing their prices going up today. We've got uh, Exxon leading the charge in the US uh, at the moment. Um, and they will be keeping a very close eye on what happens here because we saw what happened last time. What happens with the oil price has a huge bearing on what happens with the stock market. And when that oil price fell off a cliff, as it did so dramatically last spring, it had a huge impact on the stock market. Yeah, I mean, don't forget that stocks like BP and Shell are in lots of people's pensions, uh, and you know these are very generous dividend payers. So you know, we had a, we had sort of fears a few years ago about dividends being cut. You know, now now the sort of talk of they're making so much money at these higher oil prices that you might get sort of extra dividends as well. So I mean, there's there's lots of ways you can look at this um, you know this situation at the moment. And so Royal Dutch Shell has just said today as well that it will increase dividend payments. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this is, um, you know, perhaps don't get too carried away if, you, if you're sort of looking at your portfolio and suddenly getting all this extra cash flowing in from oil dividends. But it's, you know, just have to remember, it, it didn't seem that long ago when people were talking about multi-decade low oil prices. Now we're talking about, um, you know, incredibly high oil prices. So, you know, the volatility in this space is crazy, really. It is. And I know that certainly in the United States, one of the things that was impacting oil prices was the shale fields. They were doing huge amounts of business in the US and the appetite there has very much dwindled and we've seen output drop quite dramatically. And I know that certainly that was one of the huge reasons that, that Russia got into the spat last year. So we are in a very different place. But of course, you know, there is money to be made in this transition period. And I think people do sometimes forget with all this talk about uh, net zero and clean energy, that there is a transition to be made. And that gap will be bridged by oil. Yeah. So it's time to welcome our first guest who has a front seat to events in the UK property market. So Alex Goldstein is an independent property consultant working across London, the home counties and Yorkshire. Now he's been an eyewitness to the explosion in house prices in the past year. And Danny talks to him about the current state of the market and what we might see next. So you have been up close and personal to what um, Andy Haldane described as the housing market, which is on fire. Is that your experience? Without question. And I've been very fortunate to have a foot in both camps, both the London market and the Yorkshire market. But it is, in particular in the Yorkshire market, it has been absolutely 
phenomenal. I've I've been in the industry what nineteen years now. I've I've never seen anything like it, and I doubt I'll see anything like it again. So, what's happening? Are people who maybe wouldn't have given areas of the country a second look before now being able to make very different choices because of the way that their work-life balance has changed. Exactly that. And I'd probably put this, this is one of the most significant positives that's actually come out of lockdown, out of COVID, um, because it's actually forced buyers to really analyse what they want out of life. And it's actually forced companies' hands, because up until this point, their staff base were really pushing for more flexible working and to sort of come into the office on occasion. And companies were sort of fairly shy of that. It was the unknown. COVID's forced companies' hands and they've realised that they can do it and they can have a remote workforce. They can give their staff what they've been pushing for uh, for all these years. And more importantly, looking ahead, companies can make some very significant cost savings because they've got the remote work base and because people now only need to go into I say London head office once or twice a week or a couple of times every other weeks this has as you said massively opened up in particular the the Yorkshire market there is no more nine to five there's no more commuting and people just want I suppose more outside space and better schools and lifestyles and now they realise that actually going beyond London and the home counties is is very much feasible. One concern which has come from the shift that we were talking about with people being able to work from home, being able to look at a wider geographical area is that there's an awful lot of money coming out of London which means that house prices in the north of England, in places like Yorkshire, are going up and becoming increasingly unaffordable to people. That uh, they, they are. And again, this sort of flies in the face of what the government were trying to do and, dare I say, fine-tune and arguably sort of meddle around in the market and something that countless housing ministers currently and prior just don't have any property experience whatsoever and they come up with these schemes and the market was already strong let's 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 not forget that the market was incredibly strong as we came out in sort of July and indeed went back into lockdown in January this year the market was there and buyers had a lot of pent-up demand and the Chancellor said we'll have a stamp duty break and it just sent everything into meltdown and some incredible figures have been achieved there has been a surge in off-market property sales um, at the moment but because you've created a artificial hike and I wouldn't go as far as saying a bubble because I don't think anyone's actually predicting a crash at the moment. Far from it. Um, we've just seen a very rapid increase in in prices. You then the fallout of that has been, say, mortgage lenders, banks have been incredibly twitchy because they can't predict where the market's going to go. It's, as you quite rightly said, Danny, it's made it more difficult for some sectors, in particular first-time buyers, to... Um, afford it. Um, And equally, we've seen councils and their local authority searches just can't keep pace. Um, Convincing solicitors have almost been on their their, their knees, but people just going back have been leaving London, the home counties, yes, because there is 
better value for money. But what we're seeing at the moment and what's very exciting to be part of is we're going to see a, a seismic shift in the property market. And no longer is it about the north-south property divide. It's the other way around. It is the south-north property divide. And the gap is closing very quickly. Equally, I know we've talked about London and home counties and people saying, well, we don't want city life anymore and we want to spread our wings and have the lifestyle and flexibility. And you've got people relocating nationally. Let's not forget Yorkshire, it's the biggest county. Um, You've got those, I say, locally moving. Also, what's been very, very interesting to uh, see and be part of, actually, is international bias coming back. Um, And by this, I mean, I've got at the moment, I've got buyers out in Singapore and the United States and had one recently in France. They are Yorkshire expats. They've done extremely well and they want to come back home, if you will, in inverted commas. And all of a sudden, you've got all this money locally, nationally and internationally all flooding into the north of England and Yorkshire. And that's Yes, that is the big positive out of um, COVID, but it's it's bolt-ons um, that have supported this. For example, a lot of the international communities and investors in particular follow the premiership. So Leeds being back up in the premiership has helped. Gareth Southgate, dare I say, he's, he's a local chap to uh, Harrogate. That will certainly have an effect. BBC to Salford, the Bank of England in Leeds, you've got some very sizable blue chip companies based up here uh, as well. And all of a sudden, people's attention are looking northbound. And I, I go to London, I travel on the York to London train, and I can do it in just over an hour 45 direct. Amazing. Is it sustainable? I mean, it can't be sustainable because there is only a limited number of houses on the market for people to buy. A- House prices, I assume, are coming under incredible pressure. And are you seeing gazumping going on? Um, gazumping, I've loosely come across. But as you said, Danny, what's in the open market? And there are a lot of transactions that are happening off market, i.e. they're not on right move. They're not in the public domain. It is need to know basis time. And a lot of vendors at the moment, some are saying, well, we don't want to go online. We don't want our name and our property in emblazoned lights. We just want it kept low key and mentioned to those who are in a trusted and proceedable position. And again, what's been so interesting to see is that buyers, in order to get to the front of the queue, you have to be in the very best buying position, no longer being under offer, that, that doesn't cut it nowadays. You've got to be more advanced. You've got to be touching distance of exchange or actually over that exchange line because vendors, sellers, and indeed estate agents, if they're involved, it's all about the reliability and the security of your buyer versus the monetary amount. And the two work in polar opposites. Um, so you can't have someone that will give you cloud nine money because very often there'll be... I don't know, involved in a a chain and there's very high ratio mortgage lending and all of that, you're much better off as a vendor taking a slightly more realistic amount of money, but it's cash, it's rented and your buyer's going to be rock solid and you're going to be able to transact with that individual at the end of the day. And that really has come through very strongly indeed. What we've also seen in the off-market sector is that vendors or sellers, they can command more of a premium 
for their properties because they can say, well, look, it is a seller's market. There is a bit of a shortage in the open, in the public domain, and we're keeping this off market. But if you, the buyer, want this, you're going to have to give us a bit more money in order to secure it. And that has been on the back of the, the stamp duty holiday and in a very fast paced market that we have had um, over the last several months. And at the moment, as far as I can see, is still taking place. I was going to ask, is it something which will continue beyond the end of the stamp duty holiday? I know there's a taper, but clearly for you know that £500,000 mark, it's now more expensive to buy. And in some cases, I'm guessing that buyers have said, okay, we're willing to pay a bit more because we're not paying stamp duty. Uh, it, it's certainly been that up until this point. I think it's slightly too early to predict what the, the, the tapering on the stamp duty is going to do. However, if we just go back momentarily and looking at the data and history, it's just buyer demand. And as I said, COVID has forced people to really look at what they want to say out of life, if you want to be uh, philosophical about it. If you've got a young family and you've gone through lockdown and school closures and everything that's gone with that, it's very much the case of we want the lifestyle, we want the bigger garden space, we want better schools, and I don't need to be in head office every single day of the week, and we can afford a better property, and let's head northbound. And I think, as I said, stamp duty is not going up, it's just going back to what it was, and people people need to understand that. And Again, at the time of this stamp duty holiday, people bought into this media frenzy. The, the the amount of hype around it was just incredible, and I kept saying to people, "Don't don't lose your head." And don't get me wrong, at the the very upper limit, you could have made a saving of about fifteen thousand pounds. However, it is you, the buyer, that has to live with the consequences. So you do need to take your time. Have people lost their heads? Do you think have some people paid more? Than a property is worth, and are we going to get to one of those awful positions where people are caught up in negative equity? I, no, I don't. I don't think so because I think that a lot of well, certainly the buyers that I've been representing, they are all, I say, medium long term buyers. They are 10, 20 years. One individual says, "That's me. Take me out in a box." And if you're saying right up front, I'm going to have to pay a bit more money. On it, I don't know, it's £15,000 more or it's £25,000 or that that order of magnitude. But I get the property where I want and what I want and I'm there for the next 15, 20 years. That extra amount on a mortgage, given all the stress testing and banks, as I said, being ultra twitchy, if you're then over the line and you have to pay that over a 20-year time frame, so be it. Who are we to predict what the market is? A property is worth what someone is prepared to pay for it. We've just seen things accelerate much more quickly than anyone predicted. And it was the stamp duty holiday and coming out of COVID that's been the catalyst for that. So you obviously have insight into what's going on in London as well. That's been one area which has not seen the same rise in house prices, demand seems to have tapered and the love affair with all things London has perhaps waned a little? I, I, I'd agree. I, I think London is very difficult indeed, certainly the apartment sector. Um, and I've got a Middle Eastern based client who's a UK expat who is 
trying to sell his um, investment portfolio of about half a dozen properties, but they're majority are apartments. And it is a very tough sector because in lockdown, people are saying, well, I don't want to be cracked up in an apartment with limited outside space. I want to go. And there is now a huge amount of apartments that are on the market, but not a lot of buyers. Equally, uh, the London market is just looking as though it's going to just sort of bobble along for the next sort of three to five years. No massive dramas or changes, both increase or decrease. It's just sort of steady away. Whereas in particular, investors or those with families, as an example, are saying, well, look, where's the new, I say, hotspot? That is up in the north. That is the northwest and it's Yorkshire and it's that band across the uh, band across the country. Um, and that is providing, um, I, I suppose, the focus for a lot of people. But London remains tough and you have to price competitively in order to secure the answer. But you don't think we're going to see the bottom fall out there because there will be a lot of investors who have skin in the game in London. Uh, no, I, I, personally, no. I, I, don't, I really don't see a, a crash. I know everyone loves to talk about sort of Armageddon and we're going to see a price <laughs> bubble and it's going to bow out and crash on us. I, no one that I've come across is saying that. I'm not saying that. I think you're certainly going to see coming up in the next few months, a change in market dynamics, if you will, whereby a change in activity and how people approach the market, but no one is predicting any sort of dramas up or down. I think London is going to be rock solid, sort of steady away, but it's only going to be steady in terms of price appreciation. And therefore, if you're an investor, uh, unless you're going to take a very long term, uh, sort of medium or long term view, uh, why, why, why invest in London? And it's been for the last sort of five years, people are saying, well, I want a better uh, better value for money. Um, if I'm an investor, I want a, a low in buying point. I want a better yield. London doesn't offer that. But beyond London and the home counties, it does. And we've had this impetus probably for the last three to five years. And as I said, post-COVID, it's just surged. It, it, it really has. Um, and Yorkshire, I think, in particular, and, and indeed Manchester in the Northwest, this is this is the start of the wave. This is very, very exciting times to be in the property market um, up here. And I, I think it will continue, albeit at a slightly slower pace. But I think in terms of price appreciation, it's just going to be a rock solid, uh, steady footing upwards as it's been for the last few years. So that's really fascinating stuff. And, you know, I'm still seeing countless sold signs where I live in South London. You know, I've got a relative looking to buy and she's finding that properties are still being snapped up fast, even though the stamp duty holiday is now a bit less generous. But what interests me about the surge in the property market is that people are still eager to buy, even though prices have shot up. And now, of course, that's assuming that they've successfully jumped through all the hoops to get a mortgage, which is certainly quite a task these days. So we sent Laith Calaf off to speak with David Hollingworth from financial products broker London & Country about the kind of mortgage deals that are available on the market at the moment and what he's seeing in the property space. Very pleased today to be joined by David Hollingworth of LNC Mortgages to get an insider's view on the mortgage market. David, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. Hi, Leith. Hi there. Now, um, I've got you on to talk about mortgages. It's clearly been a, a, a crazy year for the housing market. Are you seeing any tentative signs that the stamp duty holiday being phased out, activities le levels are returning to, to something approaching normal? 
Well, I think it depends where you look at. If you look back to last year, we had some periods of extremely high demand. Now, we're still seeing that demand coming through at the moment. Um, and although the end of June will bring that tapering down of stamp duty, there's obviously still some, some benefit right the way through to September. I, I think I don't see that we're going to see a massive falling off of activity, though, because I think actually uh, there's... There's not enough supply of property. The demand remains. And actually, as people start going back to work and getting more clarity around whether they need to be back in the office, I think that will hold up um, activity levels as, as people start to consider whether actually a move further away from the office might still be on the cards for them. Yeah, OK. So, I mean, we've seen interest rates pick up in some sort of financial markets, particularly bond markets this year. At the same time, we just seem to be see mortgage deals plumbing new lows. What can you just walk us through why that is, and and whether you expect that that to continue? Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, mortgage rates and um, particularly fixed rates are at historic lows now. Um, competition is just so fierce that the rates just remain extremely low. So we're seeing two year fixed rates uh, increasingly coming in below one percent now. And five-year rates, you can get a selection of deals now that are just below 1.2%. So it gives you a flavour of just how cheap borrowing is. Um, and lenders are having to squeeze margin to, to attract borrowers. One thing just probably to keep an eye on is that we have seen as a result of lenders trying to push rates that bit lower, there has been the odd deal which has pushed rates higher. So it's important not to just be drawn by headline rate to factor in those fees. Some of the arrangement fees can be creeping up to £1,500. So um, build that in. But most lenders have a range of different fee rate combinations. Uh, so the opportunities for mortgage borrowers are, are really excellent at the moment. Yeah, I think those rates certainly are kind of eye-wateringly low, aren't they, when you, when you kind of say yeah. them like that? Um, we've obviously kind of had a lot of support from the government for the housing market in recent years, kind of helped to buy a scheme more recently, the um, stamp duty holiday. Um, the latest sort of salvo is the, the government's 95% mortgage guarantee scheme, um, only announced in March. But have you seen that had have any effect on the market as yet? Absolutely. It's completely jump-started that end of the market. So when the first lockdown came in, uh, the market did pull back on LTV simply because they couldn't get valuers out to properties to physically inspect them. But we saw a really slow move back to those higher loan-to-value brackets, so those deals for those with small deposits. Um, the guarantee has actually just really uh, jump-started that market. So um, now we have a much better functioning 95% um, market. Uh, more and more lenders are coming in. Not all of them using the government guarantee, uh, interestingly, but I think the guarantee really helped encourage those lenders to have the confidence that they weren't going to be just bowled over by a huge wave of 95% applications at a time when they were still trying to protect their service levels. So um, as they're feeling their way, we're seeing more competition. That started to bring rates down. You'll still pay more, of course, if you've got a smaller deposit. Rates are that bit higher. Um, but they are getting nibbled down um, so that the margin between them and what you can get with a 10% deposit is just slightly narrowing now. 
Yeah, so some more, st- more stimulus there, obviously, kind of um, doing what the government wants it to, I guess, and, and, and boosting kind of activity levels. Just kind of looking at the interest rates and kind of some of the choices that people might face if they're mortgaging now. Given how low, low interest rates are at the moment, it just seems a bit of a no-brainer to me uh, to, to fix if you're, if you're getting a mortgage at the moment rather than taking a, a kind of tracker mortgage. Uh, is that, you know, am I missing anything there? Or, or you know, are people, is, is anyone still buying a tracker mortgage or is everyone kind of fixing because that's where we are in, in terms of kind of interest rates and the economic cycle? Yeah, you can still get um, a tracker rate, but you're right that the vast majority we find are going for fixed rates and there's there's a number of reasons for that so base rate is so low and i, I know there's been lots of conversation about you know, could base rate go negative um but of course for mortgage borrowers they're looking at actually more likely to be security that a fixed rate gives them so if they can fix in and lock in at a low then that's very appealing um they're also looking at rates on a track rate which are not dissimilar to what they can fix at so whilst rates could go a touch lower, um, the downside of a variable is, of course, that it could go up. And even some of the tracker rates that are still available, you will still see collars on those rates, i.e. a minimum rate. So even if base rate did drop again, you actually wouldn't really see any benefit from being on a variable. So that does tend to steer people towards uh, fixed rates. But of course, those who, who are bullish about where rates might go then may still go for a track rate you just need to be um, able to to deal with any fluctuation that might take your payments higher great stuff well i mean let's finish with um um you know something for for i guess people to take away if they are um, looking at um at getting a mortgage at a moment what are your three best tips for anyone taking out a mortgage at the moment well we, we've touched on deposit it's it's a really key one um, if you're on the cusp of a lower bracket, so every 5% of deposit can make a difference to your um, your banding and the kind of rates and options that are open to you. So if you're just slightly over, um, then it's worth seeing if you can stretch to a very slightly bigger deposit because that could bring you under the next um, tier and, and cut your rate. So let's say you're going from 5% to 10%, that could shave half a percent off your, your interest rate. Um, another one on know your numbers, affordability is key. So deposit isn't the, the silver bullet for everyone. Um, you're going to need to know what your affordability is. And uh, as part of that, it's not just a straightforward income multiple these days. So you need to know what the breakdown of your income is uh, accurately. Um, but you also need to know what your outgoings are. So looking to give the lender an overall picture of what your disposable income might be. Uh, And then finally, I'd say, make sure you've got your documentation to back those numbers up. So processing times have have at times seen delays. So actually, if a lender's coming back to you looking for more documentation, it's really important to have that to hand and be ready to to offer it. So self-employed, for example, have had to come under the microscope a little bit more, not just offering their, their typical track record of a couple of years, but also in many cases having to provide current business bank statements for, to the lender to try and show uh, that their income hasn't been impacted um, by the pandemic. So, so there may be a bigger paper trail, make sure you've got that paper to hand. 
love your job. Some great advice there. Thank you, David. Thank you very much for all of that. Been great to get your insights. So thank you very much for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. Let's move on to the world of commercial property, which covers a wide range of buildings from office blocks and shopping centres to warehouses and port facilities. Dan recently caught up with AJ Bell's fund expert Ryan Hughes to get his thoughts on the space and the uproar around dealings being suspended in certain property funds. Now, Ryan spent a lot of time looking at the setbacks that investors have faced and has really good insight into this part of the investment universe. In recent years, we've had various property funds temporarily block investors from withdrawing their money. Why did this happen? And have these restrictions now been lifted? Yes, right. Certainly property, or let's be clear, commercial property has had a little bit of a tough time over the last few years. And it's not so much that it's the actual property itself uh, that's been necessarily challenged as the structure of the investment that it's been held in. So the the big funds that we've seen uh, over the last few years have been open-ended property funds, and these are funds that you can buy and sell every day. Uh, And the trouble is there, of course, is that the underlying asset, physical commercial property, buildings, supermarkets, shops, warehouses, all those types of things, um, you can't buy and sell those in a day. We all know with property that it takes a long time. And the trouble is that you get this mismatch of liquidity. So if there are too many sellers in a fund, Uh, and people want their money back. The funder said you can have your money back tomorrow, but the trouble is if they haven't got enough cash to pay you back and they need to sell the underlying properties, then that takes a lot longer than simply one day. Uh, And what we saw was that these property funds had to suspend uh, back, firstly at the Brexit referendum back in 2016 because uh, people wanted to withdraw their money and they ran out of liquidity. And actually with the pandemic last year, we saw a huge amount of uncertainty where valuers were saying, we just don't know what's going to happen uh, to the property market. We can't value them accurately. uh, And therefore, the funds suspended because they couldn't give anyone a price to be able to sell sell the underlying assets. So a few different things going on with commercial property funds. Uh, Most of this has now been resolved. And these commercial most of these commercial property funds have reopened and you can buy and sell them. Uh, again, on the, on the open-ended side. But perhaps one fly in the ointment is that the FCA uh, has been looking and continues to look at, at the uh, approach to dealing with properties, open-ended property funds, and may well be restricting uh, the access uh, in the future so that you need to give a notice period before you can get your money back. Uh, and that's creating some further uncertainty uh, for these funds. Does this sort of suggest that property is perhaps not a, not as good as investment as people thought, or actually it's okay, but perhaps you want to buy it through an investment trust rather than a fund, because there the, the fund manager wouldn't have to do sort of a file sale of assets if investors wanted to get their money out. Yeah, that's a really important point. It's, if you're investing in an illiquid asset, and we all know that property is not liquid, it's not easily bought and sold, uh, it's vital that the investment structure it sits in matches the the liquidity of the asset. Uh, and with an open-ended fund, as we just discussed, then uh, that's really, really difficult to do. Uh, but in a closed-ended structure, I, an investment trust, uh, there the fund manager doesn't need to uh, to worry about the buying and selling of the uh, of people buying and selling the trust because that happens on the stock market. They've got their their kind of captive pool of assets. They can invest in property for the long term, 
without the worry that they might have to quickly sell to raise liquidity to pay, pay people back, without the worry of money coming in and then having to find new properties to put that that to work in. So the investment trust area is actually a really uh, useful way of accessing property. But, and there's always a but with these types of things, the trade-off for liquidity, because you can buy and sell your investment trust pretty much on any given day, is that you might not get the full value of the property uh, back. So they might well, these trusts might well trade at a discount. Uh, so that is, if you're if you're an owner and you're selling, the properties might be worth, let's say, one pound a share, but the actual price that you can sell them at might be 80 pence per share, so a 20% discount. But that's the trade-off for investing in uh, illiquid uh, assets. So getting the structure right and understanding the mechanics of that structure i.e. premiums and discounts of where these trusts can trade becomes really, really important. So which parts of the property space do you think look more attractive in a sort of a post-COVID world? Yeah, it's, that's a really good question, because if we think about how our lives have changed uh, post-COVID, I imagine that most of you listening are buying more things online, so you're not going to the high street. Um I imagine that your friendly Amazon delivery driver uh, is doing like he is in my house here, which is t- taking the daily daily steps up my drive to, to, to deliver a parcel of something we bought online. And so it's completely changing the dynamic uh, of, of how we're living our lives. And that actually means that certain parts of the property market, i.e. logistics, warehouse, logistics, warehousing, distribution, so all these types of things that are really important for um uh, to, to get your parcels and your goods to your door, they've actually been doing really, really well. Uh, other areas have been doing well as well. Things like supermarkets. Uh, of course, we've been uh, we've been buying lots more uh, food. It seems during the, the pandemic, and healthcare as well is another sector uh, that's also prospered. So, in the investment trust space, there are specialist companies, specialist trusts that focus on these very particular areas. So, if you like. Um, if you like logistics and warehousing, you can buy a logistics and warehousing uh, investment trust uh, or a supermarket one, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I understand you've got you've got one of the big players in in the uh, in the warehousing and logistics space uh, uh, on on the podcast, Tritax uh, Big Box, uh, and that's exactly their uh, their area of expertise, focusing on uh, the parts of the uh, the market and the property uh, market. That, that are benefiting from the way that we are changing our lives. So it's not all doom and gloom. Um, it's not all about the high street struggling. It's actually thinking about what's going to do well in the way that we're changing. And there are very many opportunities to play that. Oh, brilliant. Ryan, thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you. I think it's important to stress the problems we've seen with certain property funds in the past few years haven't made this space uninvestable. There is still merit in considering property as part of a diversified portfolio. Ryan mentioned earlier we've got Tritax as a guest on the show and its flagship investment trust has been a big hit with investors in recent years, despite problems elsewhere in the property space. Let's find out why they've done so well. So one of the big success stories in the world of property has been the surge in demand for gigantic buildings to house logistics operations. Some people call them sheds, other call them warehouses. So one of the big players in this space is Tritax, which has a couple of investment trusts on the UK stock market called Tritax Big Box and Tritax Eurobox. James Dunlop is a partner at the company and joins us today to talk about this space. So James, thanks for coming on the show. 
Thank you very much for having me. Um, I look forward to talking to you. Well, let's start with perhaps uh, a question aimed at the sort of the investment side of things. So, you know, warehouses to support the storage and distribution of goods ordered online, they've been in demand for, for quite a while. I was just wondering if these existing sites are now incredibly expensive for someone like you to go and buy. So therefore, from an investment perspective, is it better for you to actually build them from scratch? Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question and a good observation. I mean, the logistics sector in the UK has been under the spotlight from the global investment arena uh, consistently for the last three or four years. And yes, the, you know, the, 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 the assets are, are very sought after, probably the, the most sought after asset class in the UK. But I, I think it's worth sort of putting into context that we believe our market's very much in its infancy. And it therefore has, in our view, enormous future value creation potential. We're specialists in the sector and we're lucky to be so. Uh, and that sector, in our view, is at the very core of how we're changing how we live, how we work, how we provision our daily lives. And these structural tailwinds, we think, are permanent and have a very long term future. Our portfolio of existing assets combined with that development land um, is there to deliver reliable, perpetual growing income uh, and, uh, and, to, and to a high degree of capital growth. I mean, I think the, the really key point, I think, is, is, is about our market at the moment is about the tenant demand, which is exceptionally strong. And it continues to strengthen literally on a weekly basis. We're finding that for every one of our buildings that becomes available, we have four or five tenants trying to lease it, which is, which is an extraordinary position to be in. This long-term supply and demand imbalance will underpin our performance and the performance of others for many, many years to come. So it hasn't reached a peak. We believe it's very much in its infancy. Um, and it is, you alluded to, sort of, is, 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 have we made a chip decision to develop our own? Yes, we have, but we're also continuing to buy well standing assets in the market. But we have tilted a lot of our portfolio through our land bank, which is the largest in the UK. Uh, and, and that land bank, combined with our partnerships and commitments to our, to our occupier relationship, gives us a real edge in our mind, because we actually control the raw materials of the land supply to unlock our end product, which again, I said, is that sustainable growing income. Uh, and I think we're unique in that way. We can, we can buy in the market where we see value uh, and we can, you know, I like to say, we can bake our own cakes at the same time at, at a very low cost. So uh, I think we've got the best of both worlds. Yeah, it's interesting. I was gonna ask about whether you say, whether you thought that, um, you know, demand had peaked, but clearly you say it hasn't. But so, so is there actually sort of a trend for, companies who, who might already have one of these sort of big warehouses to actually say no we want we want bigger ones and bigger ones as we get uh you know as our operations grow is that what you're seeing uh yeah i mean from, from the occupier perspective yes very very definitely i mean the the average i mean there, there are big box market there's mid box market and smaller box market and last mile and you know there are different segments and we're very much focused on on, on the bigger box piece but we also cover mid and last mile as well with our land bank but you know, over the last five years, the average size of a, uh, a, a mid to big box has increased by about 50%. Uh, and why is that? That is because it's, it's, it's reacting, the occupiers are reacting to, to, to try and gain the efficiency of scale, of economies of scale. There's more onshoring going on. Uh, it used to be a case of just in time. It's also a case of just in case now. Um, so, you know, all of these things has, have, have led to uh, an, an increasing size of units and because these units are so rare I mean to actually get a unit from land through to being able to offer it to a tenant can sometimes take six or seven years you can't just suddenly turn on the supply tap so 
I mean, because they're so rare, tenants want to make the most and get the most efficiency out of those units. So um, the bigger, the better in many ways. I mean, for example, um, you know, Amazon, obviously one of the leaders uh, in, in our field and one of our key tenants, we've just completed a building in Dartford or we're just uh, finishing off the building a bit at the moment, pre-let to Amazon on a 20 year lease. It's 2.3 million square feet. Uh, and to give some sort of context to that, that's just over 30 football pitches. So yes, the answer to your question, these units are getting bigger. There's very valid reasons why they're getting bigger. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, it's a fascinating place to be. I drove past Dartford the other day and I did see Lucky a, you. a very large structure of a building being done. On, uh, I wondered whether that was one of yours. But Yes, that, that, that's the, uh, the Amazon uh, 2.3. Um, yeah. Million. Just to, just to the as you come over, just to the right uh, by the river. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, no. um, you mentioned about companies perhaps wanting just in case um, sort of availability to to their goods, but you know, I, I was wondering whether Brexit's had any impact on this part of the property market because I obviously know that you know companies perhaps yeah. would would be happy to sort of um, import stuff from from Europe in the past but now perhaps if they're worried about the availability of goods you know is do they really just need more storage space to have more stuff available now is that is that what you're seeing yeah I think that's true I mean there are different factors at work with different sort of business models of our occupiers but in, in, in essence brexit um, uh, now it's largely concluded I mean we're seeing uh, the mist is lifting to a significant degree we're seeing a very strong rebound from our occupiers looking to upgrade the resilience of their supply chains um, and capitalize on, on, on the staggering increase in online. And, you know, it is about sort of being able to fulfill a, a consumer's requirement uh, fast, efficiently, efficiently and at a, at a low cost. Uh, and they do now need to onshore more to protect their resilience of their supply chain because they may or may, or may not be delayed through not just Brexit, you know, trade wars, pandemics, whatever it may be, whatever shock there is to the system, having that resilience in the supply chain protects your brand because you can actually honor the commitment that you've made to a consumer to acquire a unit from your brand. So yes, uh, Brexit did pause things initially, uh, I think mainly because quite naturally, most corporates were trying to work out what it really meant. Um, uh, and then once they started to see what could be happening, um, uh, they decided that you know they would commit uh, in, in a larger way to our units uh, and in many, in many ways just a very fundamental uh, piece you know the cost of imports has gone up scale of these big boxes offsets that cost by the economies of scale so there are many factors at work but Brexit did put a pause on uh, occupier activities uh, uh, for two or three months but when the rebound came it came back even stronger. Yeah. Uh, historically, you know, there's been industries like supermarkets of, you know, they've liked to own their own property where possible. But do you think that, you know, the, nowadays they're perhaps more likely to lease um, things like warehouses from people like yourself? Or do you think actually there's a risk that they'll look at this and think, well, we need a big warehouse long term. Perhaps we should be owning this. And therefore, you, you know, you might lose out on uh, uh, what, what might naturally someone might seen as, as a natural customer. Yeah, no, that's, that's a very, very good question. Uh, I mean, historically, um, supermarkets, you're quite right, had a sort of track record of owning their own assets. I'm thinking of Tesco sort of 10 years ago uh, and various others. Uh, Lidl and Aldi still have a model where they, uh, they build most of their own, but they are, they are leasing quite a few. And we are in discussions on, on some of our assets with them because of the undersupply and their favoured model that you know, they want to own. But you know, if you can't get hold of it uh, and, and we own a lot of that land bank, then 
the nature of that dialogue changes into a, a leasehold piece. But I mean, I think it's really important to sort of focus on, you know, why we're not seeing occupiers buy their units uh, or build them uh, in the main. And why? Because owning and developing property is is a particular skill set. Occupiers haven't tended to build that functionality within their platform. So, you know, that unique toolbox to, toolbox to deliver is, um, is, is often not within the occupier. Also, depending on what their structure is, you know, their, their shareholders want them to focus on what they're good at, which is generating margin in their specific area of expertise. Um, so uh, we're not seeing uh, a rise of, uh, of owner occupiers coming through. And I think the last point to make is, I mean, people really should bear in mind that these units are big balance sheet items. I mean, quite often our units cost 100, 150 million pounds to build. That's before you even fit it out. And the tenant are, is responsible for, for the fit out. And quite often that fit out is even more expensive than the actual build cost. I mean, we've got cases in our portfolio where the cost of fit out is two or three times the cost of the construction of the asset. So, you know, if you combine the fit out with owning the asset, you've got a huge balance sheet uh, liability. Uh, um, so, um, you know, we're, we're not, the long answer to your question, we're, we're not seeing a rise in the owner-occupier for many different reasons. Yeah. What, what In terms of um, vacancy rates, obviously just, you know, from the sounds of it, you've got people queuing up for your yeah. uh, properties, but do, do you actually have any sort of vacant ones? And if so, is it because they're the sort of the, the type of warehouse that perhaps is not sort of thing that they want? Well, you're very kind to ask me this question because it's, you know, uh, 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 we're full up. We have zero yeah. vacancy. <laughs> so you set me up very well for that. Thank you. Um, but, you know, but not only we're full up, we, we do, you know, you alluded to it. We do have uh, a waiting list for assets as they emerge from our land bank. Um, so, you know, the market is structurally undersupplied uh, and the pandemic and Brexit and trade wars and all the various different macroeconomic drivers that have shocked or moved the way people react these days have, have added to uh, the demand side uh, and the supply side is restricted. Uh, I mean, the UK can traditionally produce 20 million or so square feet of new assets a year in the big box space. And we've currently got demand of over 100 million um, uh, live uh, in the UK and in our in our portfolio. So um, uh, it's, we're in a good place and there is zero vacancy. And it also under, underlines not only the supply and demand uh, imbalance, but it also underlines you know, the, uh, the overall um, fundamental long-term future for, for this asset class. You can't just turn supply on and we don't see that demand dropping off at all. If not, we see it increasing. So if you've got such strong demand from yeah. people wanting your properties, does that make it really easy to push up rents? Because you could just <laughs> say to existing tenants that, you know, you pay this extra, otherwise we've got someone else just waiting around the corner who will take it. Uh, yes. I mean, in essence, yes. But at the same time, you know, there are other factors than just, we've got our portfolio, half of our, so step back, half of our portfolio is indexed, inflation indexed. Um, half of our portfolio has what we call open market rent reviews. Um, and, and so you know, it, with inflation rising um, and sort of on people's minds and lips at the moment, uh, we're in a very good place for that indexation piece for half of our portfolio. Uh, and the other half we position to be open market rent reviews. And so when we we are seeing very strong rental growth coming in, coming through on the open market side in, in certain areas. But it's not just all about the rent. It's also about the quality of the tenant. I mean, because we we we're in a lucky position where we, we can choose and curate our portfolio. So we look and seek 
sort of the best operators in each sector who've got a valid growth implicit long-term model. So, you know, rent is one factor and we are seeing very strong rental growth. The right tenants who are market leaders in the right sectors. Um, so it's a good balance. Yeah. You, you you mentioned about quality of tenant, obviously, and you, you refer to working with Amazon. Actually, yeah. you know, one-fifth of your rent uh, approximately comes from Amazon. Yeah. You know, in normal circumstances, one might thought it's, it's not wise to be dependent on such a, a single, you know, one single customer like that. But do you make an exception because it's, you know, it's, it's Amazon and it's just such a, a successful business? Um, I, I, I'll pick you up on the word dependent uh, uh, in the second part of the question. But um, you know, we, we're firm believers in Amazon and we have been since the early days. Uh, we could see they were going to be a market winner and their innovative model just evolves at such a speed uh, that it's just quite mesmerizing. And, and we learn a lot together. Uh, we, they learn a lot from us about real estate and we learn a lot about their model. Um, and actually, their, their business and the our view of the growth of online that was go, was coming was really very much one of the reasons why we launched Big Box sort of seven or eight years ago. We did take a calculated risk at the time, uh, you know, backing Amazon, but it's paid off. Um, and, and we're doing the same with other tenants that we're sort of uh, looking into and, and working out whether they are, are someone that we want to partner with in the long term. You know, it, they're a great customer, they're a great partner, and it's a symbiotic relationship. But our portfolio is not all about Amazon. Um, we've got the leading third-party logistics companies, homewares, discount retailers. You know, the, the te- other tenants that are pretty dominant or pretty strong in our portfolio: Ocado, Sainsbury's, Tesco's, DHL, B and Q. We blend it, um, uh, and, and on that dependent point, I mean, it, it, it's it's worth sort of just sort of peeling back the onion a little bit. You know, we have a, a good a good, and we're very comfortable with our exposure to Amazon. And we will probably increase it as our portfolio grows. So you know, we're very comfortable with that. But if for whatever reason a, a tenant left, we've got a very strong demand for that unit. So it's we're not betting everything on that tenant. Uh, we've we've created that tenant. We've chosen that tenant. But if 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 they left or they or, or or they went bankrupt or bust or into administration, we've got a a list of tenants that would take any one of those units within the first three or four months so it's not it wouldn't be the end of the world it will obviously um, need, need some smoothing out but you know the underlying demand dynamics um, protect our income stream uh, for the long term great james dunlop from tritex thank you very much for joining us thank you very much indeed i really enjoyed it and i uh, hope to speak soon I hope you've enjoyed this week's property special. Let us know what guests you'd like to hear from on future episodes by emailing podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Next week, we have an expert who'll be talking about sports direct owner Fraser's Group and funeral provider Dignity. Until then, thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.